Malachi is just to the left of that uninspired page. That would be the blank page that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In other words, it is the last book of the Older Testament. The Older Covenant. Malachi 3, beginning at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we're told in Your Word by the Apostle Paul that You love a cheerful giver. We want to ask You to continue to transform our hearts so that it would be a delight, a privilege, extreme joy for us to give to Your work, to give to Your kingdom, to give to You. So Father, speak to us from this passage that is very relevant to us today. We ask this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. On the wall of President Lyndon Johnson's White House office hung a framed letter written by General Sam Houston to Johnson's great-grandfather, George W. Baines, more than a hundred years earlier. Baines had led Houston to Christ, and the general was a changed man. He no longer was a coarse and belligerent man. Now he was peaceful and content, had a genuine love for Christ. After General Houston was baptized, an incredible event for those who knew the man, he offered to pay half the local minister's salary. When someone asked him why, he said, my pocketbook was baptized too. (laughs) Not a bad response. Um, What is needed if we are going to be cheerful givers? which is to say, the kind of givers that God loves. Um, We've been answering that question for a number of weeks now. Um, At week one, we saw that genuine repentance and conversion was necessary. Uh, Sam Houston was only half-joking when he said, my pocketbook was baptized as well. Um, What he meant by that was, every single aspect of my life has been changed because of Jesus Christ. Um, We also saw that if we're to give as God's calling us to give, we need to have an eternal perspective. 
D.A. Carson said it well. He said, Christians live in light of the end. Much of what we believe and much of the suffering we are prepared to endure derive their meaning from the prospect of vindication and resurrection. Without that prospect, Christianity does not make much sense. And then he quotes Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. As Christians, we live for something more than personal peace and affluence. Uh, We live for heaven. We live for eternity. And we live to hear God's commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. And that should impact our giving. Um, We also saw that if we're to give as God's calling us to give, we need to have faith in a loving Heavenly Father. And in Matthew 6.33, our Lord promises that if we will seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, then all these other things that we need will be added unto us. And we need to remember that we have a Heavenly Father who takes care of us. And our Heavenly Father is a great God. Um, I remember a pastor was telling a story one time. He was talking to a Muslim. And this Muslim uh, said to the Christian pastor, we would never refer to Allah as Father. He is much too great to be called Father. And, And the pastor said, well, he was thinking, he said, well, wait a second. My God is the great God. And our God is a great God. He is the greatest God. In fact, He is the only true God. But we have the honor of calling this great God Father because He's adopted us into His family. So let's remember the greatness of our Heavenly Father. And then last week we mentioned if we're going to give, as God's calling us to give, we need to have a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we love them, we will just naturally help them when they need help. We'll pray for them. Um, we'll help them carry their burdens. We'll do whatever we can to help them. Uh, and not just in word, but also in deed. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask my family after a, a sermon is, what did you get out of the message? And I don't ask what was it. But I'm not really interested in the details. You know, well, Dad, these were your three points, or these were your four points. Um, I'm really more interested in, well, what, what did God say to you, or, or what really hits you in the message? And if I can answer my own question, this is what hit me last week. A day is coming when the nations are going to be gathered before Christ, and they are going to be judged based on their treatment of the church based on how they treated the Christians around them. Because I really do imagine people are just going to be stunned when they realize that's how they're going to be judged because Jesus identifies with His people. And have that mindset the next time you watch the news and you hear about Christians who are in jail because they won't convert to another religion because they're Christians. Keep in mind, a day is coming when they are going to be judged. For that, And today I want to look at one other uh, motivation for giving as God's calling us to give, and that is belief in God's promises. And of course, there are many promises that God gives us that should comfort us. Uh, Philippians 4.19 is a great one. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul says, and my God will meet all your needs. Not some of them, not most of them. My God will meet all your needs and He will do that according to His glorious riches in Christ. So we can be assured that He'll provide for us. I mentioned Matthew 6.33. That, that's a promise. If we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Jesus says, and all these other things will be added to you. God will take care of them. Uh, you worry about the kingdom and He'll worry about the daily necessities of life. Food, clothing, shelter, etc. We can look at Psalm 37.25. That's a great one. Uh, I was young and now I am old. Yeah, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. God promises to take care of the righteous. And I like that one because He also promises to take care of their children as well. But this morning, I want to look at uh, perhaps what is the most audacious promise that we have. And that is the one found in Malachi 3.10. Notice what God says. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Or other translations say, until there is no more room. That's incredible. God says, if you bring in the tithe, I will open the windows of heaven. And do you know what this verse is a parallel of? Does anybody know? Does anyone say, ooh, that sounds vaguely familiar to something I read earlier in the Bible. I'll help you out. This is a parallel with the flood of Noah. Look at Genesis 7.4. Same phrase is used. Actually, I wrote down the wrong verse. It's, it's Genesis 7.11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And when the windows of the heavens were opened, God flooded the world. And now Malachi picks up on that language and he says, guess what? God says if you'll bring the full tithe in, I'm going to flood your life. Now, I believe we have promises that are comparable to this promise, but I don't know if we have a more graphic promise where God says, I'm going to flood your life with blessings. If you will obey Me in regards to this command, it is an incredible promise. Now, let me begin with the context of this passage. Of course, context is always important, right? Um, the context of the book of Malachi is the Israelites uh, for about a hundred years have been uh, back in Israel after being taken away um, in exile. Uh, the date of this book is roughly 430 B.C. Um, but unfortunately, during this time, Israel has not reformed her ways. Therefore, God is not able to bless His people like He would like to. Let me say that again. I think that's very important. Therefore, because they have not reformed their ways, 
God is not able to bless His people like He would like to. Which implies it is the heart of God to bless His people. He wants to. Now, this is not to deny the sovereignty of God. Of course, God can do whatever He wants. But this is just to emphasize human responsibility when it comes to the blessing of God. We do have a part to play. Sometimes we act as though revival is all mysterious. And of course, revival, genuine revival, is a divine work of God. I mean, I always laugh when I see church signs, you know, revival Friday night. You know, I'm always thinking, there's going to be a revival here? Wow, I can't wait. Boy, if Jonathan Edwards could have planned a revival, just think how many more people could have showed up. A genuine revival where, where hundreds, thousands of people come, that's the work of God. But we have a part to play in preparing for revival, if nothing else. And perhaps the most famous passage talking about this is 2 Chronicles 7.14. Hopefully you're familiar with it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God says, if you do this, then I'll respond and I'll forgive and and I'll bless you. We have something similar to here. There's, There's a challenge for the people to stop robbing God, to bring in the tithe. And then what do we read at the end of this passage? Verse 12, Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Why will all the nations call them blessed? Because all the nations will then look at Israel and say, wow, surely the blessing of God is upon them. Which is, means that God will bless His people when they respond in obedience. So the people of God need to respond. Now, I mentioned earlier, one, one of my favorite questions to ask after a sermon is, uh, what did you get out of the message? Um, and I like to ask that question about people's Bible reading too. What, what did you get out of your Bible reading? And a while back, I, I asked Michelle, I said, what did you get out of your devotions this morning? And she said, she was in one of the prophets, I forget, and she said, boy, it was really hard to understand. Um, but I got this much out of it. God is serious about sin. He is not playing games. And if you will read through the prophets, even if some of it is hard to understand because of the language, you will come away saying, God is to be feared. He is not mocked. He's playing for keeps. He is not fooling around. And that's what we see in the book of Malachi as well. It is no exception. Now, it's a serious book, um, but it is also... A tender book, if you read it carefully. Uh, turn to Malachi 1-2. I want you to see how it begins. After the pronouncement that this is an oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, this is what we read. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Basically, God says, okay, I'm going to tell you. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. In other words, this is what God has saying. Jacob had 
had two sons, or excuse me, there was um, two sons, Jacob and Esau, but I chose Jacob. I chose you. You want to know that I loved you? I have chosen you. And if you're familiar with this passage, you know that it shows up again in Romans 9.13 to talk about election, which means that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it's because God has chosen you and not, say, your next door neighbor. Which is to say God loves you out of His own sovereign pleasure. And often when election comes up, we say, well, why this person and not that person? But the doctrine of election should make us stand, why me? It should make us stand in awe that God chose us. He could have chosen so many different people. And we should say, why me? We should be absolutely stunned that God has loved us. And I find it great that this book begins by God saying, now remember, before I say anything else in essence, remember, I love you. You're my people. Why do you think you're back in the land? You think that's an accident? I brought you back in the land. That's why you still exist. So God loves His people. He's compassionate with His people. And then look at the more immediate context in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Sounds a little frightening. What it means is because of your behavior, I should have wiped you off the map a long time ago, but I didn't because I'm an immutable God. Big fancy word for I don't change, which means in the context, I remain faithful to the covenant I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And because I don't change, I remain faithful to you regardless of how you behave. And then in verse 7, we read, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Which is another way of saying from generation to generation to generation. You just turned away from my commands. But I'm patient. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. Which is why you're still here in the land to this day. But again, God is not playing games. And He says, you need to return to Me. And if you will return to Me, He says, I will return to you. And this word for return is the same word for repentance. God is saying, it's time for repentance. And how are the Israelites to manifest that? In a very clear way. By bringing in the whole tithe. And we need to give God our best. Israel was not doing that. Turn back again to Malachi 1. And this is what we read in verses 6-8. through 8. Son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? See what Israel was doing? It's up. 
time to bring an offering before the Lord. Let's walk through the flocks. Oh, well, there's a scrawny one over there and there's a lame one over there and there's the runt of the litter over there. Well, yeah, let's gather those and let's bring those to the Lord. See the Lord said? Why don't you bring that to your governor? See what Israel was doing? They, they weren't honoring God. They, they were mocking God. It's like the story of a farmer who's whose best cow gave birth to two calves. One was white and, and one was red. And he came home and told his wife and he said, I have an impulse that this is what we should do. We should raise these calves and one of them we should sell and keep the proceeds for ourselves and the other one we should raise and sell the proceeds and we should give it to the Lord's work. And the wife said, well, which one is going to be the Lord's and, and which one is going to be ours? And the farmer said, don't worry about that. We're just going to raise them the same. We're going to treat them the same. And then when the time comes, um, we will sell them and give away the proceeds. Well, one day the farmer comes in into the kitchen all dejected. And his wife said, what happens? And the farmer says, something terrible has happened. The Lord's calf has died. <laughs> And the wife says, well, which one died? He said, the red one. He said, well, how do you know that's the Lord? Well, I decided all along. That, that was the Lord's. And the wife said, no, you didn't. You said you would decide later. No, no, no. That was the one. But the sad truth, isn't that often how it works out? It, it's the Lord's calf that unfortunately has died and, and now we can't give the proceeds. In a very real way, that's what Israel was doing. Giving the Lord the leftovers and and he was mocked. There was no honor. Um, there was no fear in what they were doing. It was a disgrace. Now, in the text before us this morning, uh, there are a number of issues that the Lord addresses. Uh, we saw one that we just read with uh, the offerings. Um, another one was that there was intermarriage. Uh, the Israelites were marrying uh the text specifically says the daughter of a foreign god. Uh, in our context, we were saying that Christians weren't marrying a fellow Christians. Um, they were divorcing their spouses. Uh, there was injustice in the land. And very specifically in chapter 3, um, they were not bringing in the tithe. And God is very clear how He views this. Verse 8, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and offerings, you are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now imagine their surprise. They thought they were coming to the temple to worship God, and God says, you're robbing me. You're all a bunch of thieves, and they were taken aback, and they're asking, Rob, you, we wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. Who would do that? Rob the Almighty, how are we doing that? He says in tithes and contributions, you're not bringing them in. And of course, right at this point, you know what some Christian's going to say? But that's the Old Testament, Pastor. And my first answer, I'll give you a couple answers. My first answer is, so? So, that, that's the Old Testament. And the, the question I like to answer is, well, bestiality was in the Old Testament. You go, well, that's the Old Testament. And of course, I use that example on purpose to be provocative and get their attention. 
But no one says, adultery, well, that's the Old Testament. Murder, well, that's the Old Testament. Let's be very careful, first of all, before we say, well, that's the Old Testament. Just dismiss everything. Do you really want to do that? I mean, was not the law a reflection of God's character, of God's moral standards? Yet at the same time, I do understand that there has been a change. There is fulfillment in Jesus Christ, which is why you did not bring lambs to church this morning, because that's all fulfilled in Christ. But we have to be careful when it comes to the moral law. Now, first of all, when it comes to tithing, um, and we say, well, that's part of the Old Testament law, I want to say yes, and I want to say no. It was a part of the law, but it also was prior to the law. The first occurrence is in Genesis 14. Genesis 14, and I'd like you to turn there. It's a very interesting passage and instructive because it's also mentioned in the book of Hebrews. So the author of Hebrews thought it was important. This is after Abram rescues his nephew Lot who was taken captive. And then we read in Genesis 14, beginning at verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Very interesting. That should sound familiar as well. Bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, that is Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So here we have this mysterious character, uh, Melchizedek, who is a priest and a king. And hopefully you recall that he is a type of Christ, who is also a priest and a king. And this priest, king, blesses Abram. We also know him as Abraham. Here he's just Abram. And then Abram gives him a tenth of everything as a way of honoring him. Now turn ahead to the New Testament book of Hebrews. And I want you to see the significance of this. And I am doing this because I want you to see what tithing says what it says to God, and what it says about God. Uh, because I think many of us just know, yes, tithing is in the Old Testament. Yes, it's something that we should do. But if I were to say, do you have a theology of tithing? Do you understand some other things that are connected to it? Um, I don't think we really do. So I just, I just want to point out a few things so we can have a greater appreciation um, of tithing. Um, so Hebrews 7.4 Talking about uh, Melchizedek. See how great this man was. That's talking about Melchizedek. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. 
This is what tithing says. When you give 10% to a king, to a priest, you know what you're saying? You are saying, God is great. The king is great. And remember, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. So when we give to Christ today, it's a way of saying, you are great. So by implication, what are we saying when we withhold the tithe? What are we saying about God? And then drop down to verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now that's very important. The author of Hebrews is making a big deal out of the fact that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham because he offers the blessing making it very clear Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And as a sign of recognizing this person is superior, you give tithes, you give offerings, because you're saying they're great. They are superior to me. They are to be honored. They are to be reverent. So you give them tithes, and that's what you're communicating when you give 10%. In Genesis 28-22, you don't, you don't have to turn to it, but we have enough... Uh, another example. Well, you can turn to it if you want. I'm going to turn to it just real quick. I got I want to make sure I get this correct. Or excuse me, Genesis 28, 22, and this is Jacob, and he makes the vow, and then in 22. He says, And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And that's all that we have said. But again, it's another just in passing before the law comes. We have another patriarch saying that he's going to give a full tenth of everything that he's given to him. He's going to turn it back and he's going to give it to the Lord. Why? Because it belongs to the Lord. And this was communicated probably before it was even written down in the law. But this is what we have written down in the law. Leviticus 27.30 Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You remember the book of Leviticus? You were reading through the one-year Bible. That's the book you got bogged down in. <laughs> Your reading went real well and then you got to Leviticus and it slowed down a little bit. And this is what we read right, right at the end of Leviticus 27, verse 30. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So the first 10%, that, that belonged to the Lord. It was holy. Now, let me ask you a question. It's going to seem unrelated, but just, just play along. Uh, how many of you this last month uh, gave to the electric company? Whether it was Commonwealth, Edison. How, how, many, how many of you gave to the electric company? You, you have to, right? So you're kind of uncomfortable with gave. You wouldn't really say you gave to the electric company. You paid your bill, right? This, this is the point I'm trying to make. The, the Israelites, they didn't give tithes and offerings. You know what it says they did? They paid tithes and offerings because it belonged to the Lord. It was holy. The first fruits was God's. It was something you owed. So you paid it. Like you would a bill. 
if you will. And God was serious about that. Remember when the Israelites went into battle? In that first battle, God said, hey, the plunder, it's not yours. That's mine. After this way, everything you want, it's gold, silver, bronze, whatever you want, it's all yours. But this first battle, remember? This first battle, this is mine, it's holy to the Lord. And Achan saw some things that he liked. Remember, he took him in his tent, put him underneath. How did God respond? Killed him and his family. That belongs to God. That's holy. You are not to touch that. God said, I'm ready to bless you. Every victory after that, you could have filled your tent up to the ceiling. But don't forget, the first 10% is mine. It's holy. You don't use holy things for your own use. That's the Lord's. You know, it's interesting. Randy Alcorn writes in his book, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He says, records indicate that the Egyptians, Chaldeans, and Assyrians all tied to their gods, as did some of the ancient Chinese, Greeks, Romans, and Arabians. So all these other nations and religions as well had tithing as a sign of saying that, that their God is great as well. And if they were tied to their God, it should be obvious that, that we should tithe to our God. We wouldn't want to do less than they would give to a false god, would we? And of course, there's much more we could say. Deuteronomy also talks about this is a way to revere God. Um, you don't have to turn to it, but in First Samuel 8, it's kind of an interesting passage That's where the Israelites ask for a king. And Samuel says, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Because you know what the king's going to do? He is going to do outrageous things. He's going to take your sons. He's going to employ them in the army. He's going to take your daughters. And you know what else the king is going to do? The king is going to take 10% of your crops. In other words, if you establish a king over you, he is going to tax you all the way up to even 10%. Tyranny is going to take place. You don't want a king. Imagine having to give the king 10%. And we Americans today say, oh, 10%. Oh, for only to God that could happen. <laughs> If we could only go down to 10%. Today, we would embrace tyranny. Which makes us wonder what, what we have. But this is also a way of saying, you know what the king is going to do? He's going to put himself in a place of God. And, and he is going to ask of you what only God has the right to ask of you. And of course, when the government goes above and beyond 10%, of course, they are putting their themselves in, in the place of God. Asking even more than, than God asks of His people. Well, just another very instructive passage about this whole issue of um, is it relevant for today? I'll just tell you what Jesus said and I think this is a very interesting passage. Matthew 23, 23. What do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mints and dill and cumin? and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You know what? Jesus could have overturned the tithe here. He, he overturned the restrictions regarding meat. Declared all animals clean. He didn't overturn the tithe. He upheld it. He said, you're tithing good. You should have done that but also you should have upheld the weightier matters of the law. You should have done both. So Jesus upheld it. 
So what are we to do? I, I think it's clear. We are to bring in the full tithe. And that's what we read in Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And let's remember the word tithe means 10%. You know, sometimes people will make you know thousand dollars and they'll give a couple dollars to the offering and they'll say, "I gave my tithe." That's not a tithe. Tithe is ten percent. And Malachi says, "Bring in the full tithe." And it's very strong what God says here. When that doesn't happen, God says, "You're robbing me." And and to get the point across, Randy Alcorn uses this illustration. He says, he says, "What would you think of a Christian?" who said, you know what? By the grace of God, I'm growing. And this year, instead of robbing six 7-Elevens, I'm only going to, by the grace of God, rob three. What, what, what would we say? That, that, that's hardly the grace of God. And he applies that to tithing. He says, if, if we don't bring in the full tithe, we're still robbing God, even if we're just robbing God less. That's the language that is used. And again, it's very strong language. And then notice what God promises. Put me to the test and see if I will not throw open the windows of heaven and bless you until there is no more room. People sometimes say, I can't afford to tithe. Wow, you can't afford not to tithe. You are not going to get a better financial tip than the one right here. I don't care what magazine you read, I don't care what financial advisor you consult, God Almighty says, if you invest, you want to use that language, if you invest 10% like I'm commanding you to do, this is the return that you're going to get. The windows of heaven are going to open like they did in the lifetime of Noah. And you know what's going to come down from heaven? Blessings! And you're going to be drowning in my blessings. You can't afford to tithe based on the Word of God. I'm telling you, beloved, you can't afford not to. Look what God says. And then there's another promise in verse 11 as well. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil or the vine of your field shall not fail to bear. What's God saying? This is an agrarian culture. This is their business. So they raise crops. and They raise vines so they can make... A living, and God says, "This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless your business. The devourer, the the one who comes and destroys crops. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put up my hands. I'm going to say, not this crop, not this crop. Go to that crop over there, but not this one. I'm watching over this one. This crop is blessed by me. Do you want your business blessed? Do you want your job blessed? Do you want your finances blessed? This is what God's saying. I will bless you." So the challenge to us is, do we believe God? Do we believe God? Again, this is an audacious promise. This is what God is saying. And this is where I'm going to conclude. I'm going to conclude where I think this passage concludes. Notice what God says. Test me in this. And this is in the devotional that I provided for you, but when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, He said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But there is one exception and it's right here. God says, test me. You know what God was doing this morning when the offering basket came by? God said, basically, I'm throwing down the gauntlet. I'm testing you. Are you going to bring in the tithe? Test me. God says, test me. Come on. 
Test me. I'm challenging you. Bring in the full tithe. And I'll pour out such a blessing for you. This is so important. It sounds like all or nothing. And I'll tell you what you're thinking this morning. If you're tithing, you're thinking, yes! Love this promise! Yes, Lord! Open the floodgates of heaven! It really is. It's all or nothing. Or on the other side, you're just scared to death. But I'm telling you, we serve a great God. He is true to His Word. He wants to bless you. That's His heart. He wants to throw open the the windows of heaven. He's saying, come on, bring it in so that I can bless you. I want to bless you. That's my heart's desire. I want to bless you. And, and He can do it in a thousand different ways. I'm not saying you give Him $10, He'll give you 100 I mean, He can bless you in so many different ways, but He wants to bless you. We just leave that up to Him. But here's the thing. This, this is why it's so important. And this, and this is why, believe it or not, a, a series on money can be life-transforming because... When we talk about money, we really are, more than anything else, perhaps, talking about our hearts. This is why these messages are so challenging. Because every single one of us, I don't think anyone's excluded, we are bound up with our money. It's just part of who we are. It's part of our culture. There's no escaping it. This, this is what one leader said, and I, and I like this. One Christian leader said, as I reflect on my growth as a Christian across the years, the second most important gift of grace I have received has been the discipline of tithing. The first was the surrender of my will to Jesus Christ. He went on to say of himself and his wife, the Lord got our hearts when we began to tithe. And this is why it's so important. I want God to have your heart. I want you to give your heart to God. And when God gets a hold of your heart, He's going to bless it in amazing ways. So we can think this is about money. Only indirect and more importantly, this is about our hearts and how committed to God we are, how much we trust Him, how much we love Him, how much we really do think He is a great God. So what does God say? Put me to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I pray that each and every one of us take up God's challenge. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your promises. And Father, we really do believe, help our unbelief. Father, may it be a joy for us to give because of who You are and because of Your great promises. Father, thank You that You are a loving God. Thank You that You are merciful. Thank You that You are patient with Your people. That You are patient with us. Father, I pray that You will enable us by Your Spirit and Your grace to walk in obedience so that we can experience Your blessings. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.